Today on The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Thou shalt not be a selfish pig. One symbol of selfishness is your immaturity and my immaturity. And there's so many areas in my life and your life in which we're immature. And we need to think about it and look at it and see what areas do I not use wisdom? Time is a part of it. Do you think about your time basically? How I want to think, where I want to go? If so, that's a part of selfishness. The truth is, selfishness has the power to ruin even the best relationships. Welcome to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. Today, Dr. Young begins his message, Thou shalt not be a selfish pig, and shows what Adam and Eve can teach us about how to overcome selfishness in marriage. Stay with us to hear more on The Winning Walk. Well, today we begin a close and candid look at marriage with Dr. Ed Young's revealing series, The Ten Commandments of Marriage. And Dr. Young has joined me in the studio just before we hear the first message in this series. Dr. Young, how did you come up with Ten Commandments on this list? I'm always looking for biblical principles as I look at marriage, and I started listing some of them with appropriate scriptures. And I saw the scripture and I said, this is clearly saying, and then I would cross-reference it, then I'd say, hey, there's a principle, there's a principle, there's a principle. And I took those principles and flipped them into commandments. And so mm-hmm. I saw, hey, there's about 10. And I think I originally came up with eight, and then I had 12. And as I began to put them together, <laughs> I came up with 10. And I'd say, hey, we'll just call this the 10 commandments of marriage. Everyone knows you have to have 10 commandments, uh, right? you got to have 10 commandments. So <laughs> that's sort of the background of this, Wayne. Well, let's uh, give listeners an idea of where we're headed throughout this entire series. Let's, uh, let's just give a few of those sermon titles that are upcoming in the weeks ahead for everyone to know about. Okay. Right out of the chute will be, Thou shalt not be a selfish pig. <laughs> All right. We'll hear that one today. Right. Uh, thou shalt cut the apron strings. Thou shalt flee temptation. Thou shalt begin again and again. Uh, one on resolving conflict. And uh, a particular commandment, thou shalt not use the silent treatment, thou shalt date thy mate, Hmm. thou shalt succeed the second time around, talking about biblical principles for divorce and remarriage. And then finally, Wayne, thou shalt build a winning team, what a winning team looks like. And then we'll go to thou shalt begin again and again and again. And so we have these, uh, these ten principles that are biblical principles. I put them in the form of commandments. Some of them, as you'll see in our study, are divided into two segments. And I think that really starts us off and say, what's the rest of this? And so that will help us to be tuned in the next week mm-hmm. to get the, the second half of that particular teaching. Now you're giving away our secrets on radio, though. <laughs> Now, here's Dr. Young with today's message, Thou Shalt Not Be a Selfish Pig. Now, we hear about people who are engaged, and the engagement is broken, and we say, oh, what a tragedy. It's never a tragedy for an engagement to be broken. Better then than later. Because later, sometimes you can get into problems. You can have Physical violence. People have been guessing, for example, about this Band-Aid on my nose this morning. (laughs) 
Someone said, I don't know what it was about, but I'm on Joe Beth's side. <laughs> Somebody else said, I knew you'd have a wreck on that bicycle. <laughs> what happened, I had a little bit of surgery and they just took a little thing off and put some skin over the top of it. And so I wanted to answer that publicly so I wouldn't have to answer it privately about a thousand times or so. But sometimes marriages have difficulties and they reach to violent proportions. I do have good news as we begin our series on marriage. Divorce rate is down, but don't be encouraged by that because statistics can be misleading. Divorce rate is down, I think, for two reasons. Number one, people are getting married later than they used to. According to the Rutgers study just released, the average age for marriage for a female in America today is 25. For a male, it's 27. In our church, it's much later than that. I would guess for the female, it's around 28. For the male, it's around 34 in our marriage experience here. So everybody is getting married later, and that uh, skews the statistics somewhat about divorce. Also, so many people are living together today prior to being married. According to the Rutgers study, half of the people who live together as husband and wife, though they're not legally married, do eventually get married. But those who do get married, their chances are one in three more likely for them to get a divorce. So you take approximately 50% of all marriages end in divorce anyway. You take those who live together prior to being married and they have about a one out of three better chance of being divorced again. You see how the illogical outcome of people who live together prior to being married, you see that's not the way to go if you want to have a stable home and a stable marriage. So we're studying, beginning today, a 10-sermon series on the Ten Commandments of Marriage. We're going to deal with 10 thou shalt nots. We're going to look at 10 biblical couples, and we're going to see how their marriage got in trouble, and we can learn from their difficulties. And in the process, I have written in 10 basic commandments for marriage. And I know that we have all kinds of individuals and we're in all kinds of categories. There are some here who have never married. There are some who have married and divorced and never married again. Some who've married and divorced and married again. Some who are married, but their marriage is just sort of held together with, uh, uh, with sort of light uh, paper glue. Others have a a great marriage, but maybe have some difficulty there. Some are seeking to grow up in their marriage. So we have all kinds of categories. We have young people, teenagers, every way you would look. And I want to tell you something. The Ten Commandments of marriage, they're for everybody. Whatever status, whatever situation, these are biblical principles that you can take and I can take and put into practice right where we are at this moment in our pilgrimage through life. And the first commandment is not hard to understand. 
Uh, I did not couch it in theological words. You won't have to worry about the hermeneutics of it. I think everybody will understand exactly what this commandment says. It's simply this. Thou shalt not be a selfish pig. <laughs> I don't think that needs an interpretation. I, I heard one lady commented to her husband, she saw the title uh, on, on the uh, boards outside the church and said, oh, they're going to talk about you this morning. <laughs> so let's begin at the beginning. If you open your Bible to the book of Genesis, chapter number three, beginning with verse eight following. And they, this is Adam and Eve, Genesis 3, 8 following, and they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and, as, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Interesting. Just look back, if you would, quickly to the second chapter of Genesis. You read the last verse, verse 25, it says, And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And here we see God visits them, and they say, We're naked, and therefore we hid from you. And verse 11, And God said, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom thou gavest to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And there we have the beginning of marriage. Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, that first couple. You know, they had a lot of things going for them. You know, he could literally say, you're the only one in the world for me. <laughs> and she could not say to him, let me tell you about the guys I could have married. So they had a lot going for them. In a pristine garden, God walking with them in the cool of the evening, love, relationship, all the dynamics of it. And the Bible tells us that he created man and then he created woman out of, he took a rib out of the side of man. Interesting story there. A little girl was asked to comment upon the creation and tell the story in her own words. And she said, God reached down out of heaven and took some modeling clay and made a man. God looked at what he had done and said, surely I can do better than that. <laughs> and then he made a woman. And I think the little girl is absolutely correct. I like what the Hebrew tradition tells us that God took 
woman from the side of a man rather than from the head of a man. We've heard this at many weddings. God would have taken it from a man's head. It meant the woman would lord it over him. Or if he had taken a woman from a man's foot, it means that he would trample upon her. But instead, God created man from the side, from the woman from the side of a man so that they would be equal and he would be under his, she would be under his arm for protection and she would be close to his heart for love. I think that's a beautiful word. We've heard it so many, many weddings. And so we come to the garden, we wonder what went wrong because suddenly there's trouble in Eden. What happened? Remember we studied in prior two Sundays what your number one problem is and what my number one problem is. You remember what it was? We're going right back to it because we've carried it over into marriage. Your number one problem is yourself. My number one problem is myself. And our number one problem is selfishness. And the whole agenda of life is what to do about self. And here we see the first problem in marriage stems around selfishness. God said to Adam and Eve, this whole garden is yours. You can eat of the fruit from anything in the garden except there's one tree right out in the middle of the garden. It's the tree that will give you the knowledge of good and evil. And that one tree alone you cannot touch and you cannot eat. Now I want to ask you a question. Why did Almighty God forbid Adam and Eve from eating from that one tree? Did he set them up for the fall? What was the problem with this one tree? I'll tell you why I said God said no to them. Why this thou shalt not is put into Scripture right at the beginning. Because he was teaching his children to trust and obey. And he knew if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they would then have a responsibility that they were not equipped to handle. Human beings cannot handle good and evil and the total knowledge of it. When we try to, we die. Mahatma Gandhi, the Indian mystic, was once asked by a philosopher, if you were given the power of God, what would you do with it? And Gandhi said, I would give it immediately back to God who gave it to me because I don't have the capacity to handle it. And that was the problem with Adam and Eve. And then you see they fell. Eve took of the fruit. Adam took of the fruit. They were together when it happened. And then we have the first battle in the home, do we not? Why did you do it, Adam? Oh, I didn't do it, Lord. It, it's my wife. And we've been using this same rationale ever since, haven't we, gentlemen? You know, I don't have any problems. The problem, my problem is with Jobeth. I mean, I, mean, I don't have, it's, it's her. It's the woman that you gave me. That's where the problem is. And the woman says, oh, no, I'll tell you, it's the circumstances I find myself in. It's the culture in which I live. It's the serpent or it's something or somebody else. And what happened to that first marriage? Selfishness. 
I'm covering up for myself. I, I'm explaining away myself. I'm rationalizing my problems. And we still do it, and most of us are five beta kappa in it. Therefore, we need this first simplistic commandment. Thou shalt not be a selfish pig. But nobody likes to be called selfish. And it's hard for us to look in the mirror, even with the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and identify number one is being selfish. So we need to look at the symptoms of selfishness. And what are the symptoms of what I'll call pig-itis? I don't want anybody to miss it. Pig-itis. Do you have pig-itis? If so, let's look at some of the symptoms. Slip, if you would, to perhaps the best chapter in the New Testament on marriage. It's Ephesians chapter number 5. Ephesians 5. Now, all the men like me to read from Genesis or Revelation. You can find it so readily. I get in Ephesians, you get a little stumped here. Ephesians 5. And you see verse 22 to the end of the chapter of Ephesians 5 is the most profound word on marriage in the New Testament. But this whole chapter leads us up to an understanding of marriage. So let's go back to verse 15 and let's see about this pig-itis. Let's look at the itis part of it. Now we're looking for symptoms of selfishness. And the first symptom of selfishness is immaturity. You see it in verse 15. Chapter 5, Ephesians. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as an unwise, not as unwise men. In other words, we are immature. We do not use wisdom. We haven't grown. We have not developed. We're still childish. Joe Beth and I dated for six and a half years, but I can tell you when we got married, we got married on puppy love. We really did. And we were very, very immature. I had to grow up since we were married, and I'm still growing up. She had to mature and grow up since we were married, and she is still growing up. Because if you live on puppy love, I'll tell you, your marriage will turn out to be like a dog's life. I guarantee you that. <laughs> so one sign, one symbol of selfishness is your immaturity and my immaturity. And there's so many areas in my life and your life in which we're immature, and we need to think about it and look at it and see, what areas am I, do I not use wisdom? Where is that impatient? Where is that flashpoint? Where is that area I protect myself? Look at immaturity. And as we go through these commandments, we'll bump into this again. That's a part of the itis, the pig itis, immaturity. Look at verse 16. You see the next part. Making the most of your time because the days are evil. The T there is for time. How do you use your time? Do you think about your time basically as how you view it, how I spend my time, what I want to do, how I want to think, where I want to go? If so, that's a part of selfishness. You have the same amount of time that I do. I have the same amount of time that you do. And how you allot your time, schedule your time, meld your time with your mate is exceedingly important. And so many times a mate will live in this world and you'll live in this world and the worlds do not meet. So time is a symbol of 
how you really care about your mate and can be a symbol of selfishness on your own part because you say, I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to live out my own life. I'm going to go and spend my time the way I want to. And I know a lot of guys who spend their whole time in their vocation and with their hobby and their mate just gets the leftover part. Just the leftover part. I saw a guy a few weeks ago, and every time I've gone to this golf course, off and on for years, this guy has been out there on the practice ring hitting golf balls. He must hit a million golf balls a day. I guess he works, but every time I see him, he's hitting golf balls. I know him casually. And I just walked by, and he looked over to me, and he said, you reckon God loves golf as much as I do? And I just kept walking, and I said, no. <laughs> I wonder about his wife out there somewhere. Time is a part of it. It's a symbol of selfishness. When we spend all of our time, we schedule all of our time around ourselves and we forget our mates, if you're a female or if you're a male. And another part of it we see there in the next verse, not only immaturity and time, I want you to look at the next thing. It's insensitivity. Look at verse 17. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. The Hebrew word for foolish in the Old Testament means dull. It's the word like callous. It has no feeling. And the analogy here, if you have no feeling, you are insensitive. You're like a callous. Are you sensitive to your husband? You know, he's had a pressure-packed day, and so many things have fallen on top of him in his vocation, and he comes home, and he's a little irritable. Are you sensitive to what he's walked through that day? Are you sensitive to your wife or children or grandchildren, whatever the challenge might be? Otherwise, we are foolish. We're like food. We get calloused. We get calloused, and we have no feeling, and we're numb. So a symbol of selfishness, whether or not you have been accurately diagnosed with pig, pig, uh, pigitis, is simply that you are insensitive or I am insensitive and we are foolish, foolish. And look at the last part. This is the word stubbornness. Now we're going to start meddling here in a minute. Verse 21, it says, and be subject to one another in the fear of the Lord. This is the same chapter people get so upset about. It says, wives, be submissive to your husband. In the same chapter, it says, husband, be submissive to your wives. And this submissiveness to one another, I am not submissive because I am stubborn. You're not submissive because you're stubborn. And you say, this is the way my daddy did it. And this is the way we operated in this agenda. It is stubbornness. So I've got a question. Does anybody here have pig, pigitis? Does any of these symptoms seem to, to touch your life? Is this a part of who you are? Now, don't sit there and say, you know, I can't change. You can't, but God can change you. You can't, but God can change you. It's just whether or not you're serious about your marriage becoming healthy, happy, passionate, and fulfilling. If you want your marriage to be healthy, healthy, happy, passionate, and fulfilling, these are some biblical principles. Adam and Eve got in trouble because of selfishness. 
pigitis set in. It set in with many, many marriages. So let's look at these symptoms. But the, then we have to come around and say, well, what's the cure? You know, here are the symptoms for selfishness. And hey, I look at them and I'd say, well, you know, I'm, I'm insensitive sometime and yeah, yeah, I'm pig-headed. Yeah, yeah, I've got that problem. And oh, yeah, I'm, I'm telling you, I'm stubborn. And in some ways, I'm immature. And gosh, I, I hate to even think about it. But I, I spend time for myself and I forget my money. Are you like that? If we got just brutally honest, could all of us say, who are married or who are contemplating marriage, you know, I'm afraid I'll be like that. Somebody say, I've been like that or I'm like that now. How many times have I heard people say, boy, if I knew that he was going to be like that, I'd never married him. Mm, heard that a lot, haven't we? You go and listen to any marriage counselor, to any talk show on television or radio that deals with marriage, and you know the question you hear over and over and over again, couched in many different ways. You know the question you hear repetitively? It, it's the dominant question. It's this. How can I restore passion to my life and to my marriage? That's the question. It comes in all kinds of forms, but that is the question. How can I restore passion to my life and marriage? And one way is to look in the mirror and see if you're selfish and you have some part of the disease called pigitis. And the first commandment says, thou shalt not be a selfish. Uh, you're right on target. I knew I wouldn't shoot too high this morning. Now, here are the symptoms. Now, what about the cure? What, what can we do about it? What is the cure? The cure is getting back together. It's getting on the same page. If you've been married 40 years, 50 years, or 40 days, or 50 days, it's getting back on the same page. First of all, it's getting your priorities together. It's getting your priorities together. For example, ask yourself the question, outside of your family, name the three most important individuals in your life. A man would do it, a wife would do it. Name the three most important individuals in your life. All right, name the three most important ways that you would like to spend money. Your wife would list those three ways that she'd like to spend money. You'd list those three ways like you'd like to spend money. And then list the three places that you'd like to go or she would like to go. List those things. You see, this is a matter of looking. This is your priorities. Here are the people who are important to you. Here is like you would like to spend money. Here is where you'd want to go and how you want to spend your time. And look on the other side. These are the important people to me. These is how, this is how I spend money. This is where I'd like to go. This is how I'd like to spend my time. And if you see these two things are diametrically opposed to one another... Guess what? You need to sit down and do some negotiation and think it through and look at priorities. Get your priorities together. The next thing, get your expectations together. You know, what do you expect out of your wife? What do you expect out of your husband? What's a part of this 
this covenant, this I do. Get your expectations together. You know what happens to us in the area of expectations? We use inductive reasoning in determining our needs and what we expect of our mate. Let me tell you what I mean by that. In, in, in my life, I look at the relationship between my father and my mother. And I look at the relationship of other couples I've known, what I've read, what I've studied, what I've observed, and I put all of this together through an inductive way and I come to the conclusion that this is what a marriage ought to be and this is what I want and this is what I need in a marriage. And most of us approach marriage in that way. Inductive reasoning. And it's flawed. The way to approach marriage and to put your needs and your expectations down is through deductive reasoning. You sit down together with your mate and you say, this is what we expect out of marriage. This is our goals in marriage. And then you begin to work on that basis and you get your expectations together. You, you know the thing about the, the couple comes down to the altar and he is looking at her and he's saying she's going to fill, fulfill all of my needs. Man, I've had trouble having friends. She's going to be my friend. I've had trouble here and she's going to meet all my needs. And boy, she looks at him and said, he's going to meet all my needs. I know that this is the one. And we all come to the altar with a different set of needs. And we're like ticks. Ticks are parasites, you remember? And then they attach themselves to an animal and they suck blood out of the animal because that's what they need to live. And what you have at so many marriage all altar is two ticks and no dog. You got two people with different sets of needs. So you have to get your expectations together. I read that in a tremendous book called Romance in the Home that was written some years ago. And that's how we begin. You get your priorities together, you get your expectations together, and then you get your lifestyle patterns together. And this is scheduling. It, you have to schedule. You have to write it down. There's so much pressure here. Here's the wife of all that she's doing, the husband, all that he's doing. You have to get your lifestyle patterns together. And it's pretty easy to do once you have your priorities together, once you have your expectations understood, and then you get your lifestyle patterns together. Somebody says, well, I'm telling you, this is so confusing here, and I don't know if all this works there's not a person here in the business world, man or woman, if you were entering into a contract, would not have all of these things understood in advance but prior to you signing your name to the document. Priorities, expectations, patterns. How much more important is marriage? Outside of anyone's relationship with God, it's the most sacred, fabulous relationship God has offered to us in the agenda of life. So we see, hey, we've got a little pigitis. We see now some way we can be cured. How do you know when you're healthy? You know, how do you know when you get well? You know, I have so many problems with secular psychotherapy. You know, they go to their therapist for a lifetime. I'd say, when do you get well? 
You get well when you run out of money. That's when you get well. <laughs> so I want to ask, when do you get, what are some signs that, hey, my marriage is working, it's beginning to be healthy, and we're growing, and, and there's something going on here. And, and what are some of the signs? Uh, we're going to talk about love now. I asked my wife this week, out of the blue, she had no background as to where I was going. That's the way you get really straight answers. And I said, Joe Beth, don't use the word love and describe to me in one word what you think of when you think of marriage. She said, unselfishness. But I'd already written down the word for myself. I gave myself, I asked myself the question first, and I'd written down commitment. And we're both right. I said, I'm going to be committed. You be unselfish. And, you know, <laughs> but it takes both to make love. Now, love is a misused word. It takes three kinds of love to make a marriage sizzle. And when you have this love operating, I can tell you, ladies and gentlemen, you know that you're getting over pigitis and you've really got your act together and you're moving forward in that relationship. First of all, there has to be what I call feelings love. This is erotic love. You, you read about it, you see it in movies. We should be well-versed on erotic, passionate, physical love. It involves affection. It involves uh, sexuality. It involves affirming one another. It's chemistry. It's all of those things. Feelings love needs to be a part of every marriage. It is vital. It is not the whole thing, but it is a part and parcel of two people loving and sharing life together. Feelings love. Also, there has to be friendship love. This means you share. You, you have things in common. There is a friend you can go to and your mate and you can tell that mate anything when you're thrilled and so prideful, you can express that pride. When you're broken and, and wounded, you can express your brokenness because you know a true friend will sort out everything in the middle and they'll still be your friend when you're through. So there has to be friendship love. There has to be feelings love. And there has to be forever love. And that's that agape love. That, that's a biblical love. And when there's feelings love, and that feelings love has gone out, you say, boy, you know, love has died. When, when someone says, for example, I don't love you anymore, what they're really saying, I don't feel that I love you anymore. Because the bottom line, love is not feeling. There's some time you feel more in love than you do another time. Feelings can come and go. Therefore, love, therefore marriage is unselfishness, but love also is commitment, and that's also vital in marriage. And if your feelings, if that erotic part of your relationship has gone dim and it's dulled, it's just like a fire. You, you can take a fire and you can put kindling there and you can put wood there and you can give air there and you can nurture a fire and it'll grow and it'll flame up. It'll provide warmth. It's beautiful. It's crackling. It's alive. But you can take that same fire and not tend the fire and not give it the proper air and not have the kindling and the wood and the fire will go out and it will die. 
and this happens in feelings love. But the good news is a fire can come back to life and feelings can come back to life, but both partners have to seriously work at it. And then it happens in so many, many ways. And we'll talk about feelings love. That's a part of marriage, a vital part of marriage. Friendship love, we have to develop that and work at it. That's a part of marriage. And finally, forever love is agape love. Let me tell you what kind of love that is. It's the way God loves you. Did you know that God loved Stalin just as much as he loves Billy Graham? He loved Stalin just as much as he loved Billy Graham. No difference. You say, boy, he didn't love what Stalin did as the leader of Russia by any means. And I'm sure he's thrilled at what Billy Graham has done and is doing for God and his kingdom. But his love is the same. Therefore, when you say, I agape love you, and that's the biblical word, that's the 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter word, that's the word that's used there. You're saying that is a forever love, and I am committed to be unselfish, and I'm committed to you forever. So feelings love, friendship love, and then there is their agape love, that forever love. Let me tell you how this works. We're getting over pigitis, you remember. You begin to see, hey, we're developing through it. Let me tell you what happens. With feelings, love, your marriage is exciting. Yep. Feelings, love, makes your marriage exciting. With friendship, love, it makes your marriage fun. Well, I'd hate to be married to somebody who didn't have a sense of humor, couldn't laugh, and couldn't, you know. Friendship, love, makes your marriage fun. Forever, love, makes your marriage secure, secure. The couple was married for 50 years. They were, they were just so much in love. Man, they touched each other, they laughed at each other, they teased each other. And they played a game right from the early days of their marriage. It was a crazy kind of mysterious game that no one understood. But they would write out a word and they would hide it somewhere in the house for the other one to find it. And the word was spelled, it was pronounced, I guess, smiley. S-H-M-I-L-Y, smiley. And she would go and look in the sugar and there it'd be printed, smiley. And she would go and put it on his mirror and write it from the fog from the shower, smiley. And sometimes that she even took and unrolled a whole roll of toilet paper, wrote it on the last tissue, smiley. <laughs> and, and she would write it in, in the rug and, and he would tape it to, to, the, to the, uh, her dashboard in her car, smiley. And they played this game their entire married life. Their children knew about it. It was a mysterious game. They thought mom and dad, a little, little kooky, what is this smiley? They never knew what it was. The grandchildren said, you know, grandpa and grandma, they're still hiding smiley. Just smiley pops up every place. And it may be taped in a shoe. It may be in a towel. And they look for strange places to have smiley appear. But after they'd been married 52 years, she contracted cancer. And she battled the disease for 10 years and they continued to play their game of smiley and touch and laugh and love one another. 
And he was such a great husband all the way through it all that his wife died. And they had a funeral. All the children, the grandchildren, the great-grandchildren came. It was a glorious time, but a sad time, but they watched him, his mate, his partner, the one who he'd expressed that feelings love, that friendship love, that forever love all the way through the years and watched him. And they got all the way to the cemetery and they had a little service at the grave and, and they looked on the, on the casket and there it was on a pink ribbon written out the word, smiley. And then he went to the casket and he began to sing to her a deep-throated lullaby and all the family began to cry. Then most of them pushed away, but a little granddaughter stayed behind. She was a teenager, and she was holding on to him and holding his arm and hand, and she said, Pop, tell me, what does Smiley mean? He looked at her and said, Smiley, see how much I love you. You've been listening to The Winning Walk with Dr. Ed Young. We hope today's message has encouraged you to build your life on the proven truth of God's Word. Winning Walk is a listener-supported ministry. Your prayers and financial support allow us to bring proven truth to listeners around the world. Connect with us at winningwalk.org. That's winningwalk.org.